Hello, everyone. My name is Stephanie Ghostin Paul. I'm the host of the Take Nothing When I Die podcast. Take Nothing When I Die amplifies and celebrates the wisdom and genius of people who've managed multiple careers in one lifetime. You have made it to episode 22 of the Take Nothing When I Die podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Gosen-Paul, and I'm so very excited that you made it. Our guest for today's episode is Allison, who came by and dropped a bunch of wisdom for us. The best part about it is she really strikes me as someone that I've met before. You know, you meet those people, you're like, we did this already. This is not the first time we met. It, it was in this lifetime, at least. Um, but I, but I had some feelings that we had connected before on maybe another plane. And I also know this happens that when you meet people who are doing extraordinary things or who are kind of living off of the beaten path, sometimes they can come off as egocentric, right? Like it's all about them. They're just dripping with knowledge and wisdom and no one understands them. Or they can come off as very dense, right? Like not really connected to humanity or reality, really just like a means to an end type of person, but not Allison, not at all. What I appreciate about her most is her willingness to do what everyone else isn't. And not only is she, you know, taking us along that path, right? Like it's one thing to do things differently. It's also another to just be at peace and at ease with that path. And I hope you hear that in her interview. She talks a lot about what the process of her getting really clear and being okay with that herself was first before she started talking to other people. And so I'm really excited for you all to partake in that. Before we get into that interview, I have to read her particulars. And the bio that she submitted says that she's a self-professed Luddite light, creator, investigator, teacher, and learner. Her path has never been linear. She's attended Brown University for two years and then left for four years. During her four years off from college, she trained with a master goldsmith and started a fine jewelry line named after her uncle Woodrow, the only man in her life who wore jewelry daily. Eventually, she decided to return to school and finish up her degree. She's dabbled in many different fields most revolving around social justice work. And upon graduating from Brown, she got a job at City Bridge Education, a nonprofit charter school incubator. She recently moved to Atlanta because of her fiance's work and promptly enrolled in a real estate salesperson's course. She's always been interested in the concepts of ownership and private property and wanted to delve into a space that the Black community has largely been shut off from. Real estate is a wealth building industry and one of the biggest contributors to the black white wealth divide is a lack of home ownership within the black community. So I am pleased to introduce Allison. Here's her interview now. (music) 
All right, today we have Allison in the building. Hello, Allison. Thanks for joining us on the Take Nothing When I Die podcast. Hey, hey, thank you so much for having me. My first podcast ever. I feel quite honored. Oh, I'm so honored. Wait, that's very rare. I feel like that's <laughs> rare for very accomplished people, for dabblers, for, for folks who've managed multiple careers in one lifetime. They've usually been on very many podcasts. So actually the pleasure and the honor is all mine. Thank you. Thank you. So excited. This is great. So before we hop into the, the pre-sent questions, I asked my guests two questions to get our time together started. The first one being, where in the world are you? And how are you doing today? For real, for real, the real version. You can give us like the, it doesn't have to be, oh, I'm good. I'm fine. The autopilot answer. We want the real deal. Like unfiltered. Okay. Unfiltered. Yes. So I am currently sitting on a futon in my living room, cozied up against the wall, which is my favorite place to lean against in Atlanta, Georgia, actually technically Decatur, Georgia, a little outside Atlanta, Georgia. And how am I doing for real, for real? Well, coronavirus is here. So I'm in self-isolation with my fiance currently, and I'd say a little depleted. I'm an extrovert, so I definitely get energy from being around other folks, kind of bouncing ideas and being embedded in discussion. So this is really great to have this time with you. But I think that this, this self-isolation stuff is really getting to me. I'm sure it's getting to a lot of other folks. And I'm not a, you know, I'm not someone that connects via technological means. I don't have Twitter. I don't have Instagram. I don't have Facebook. So my only means of really communicating with people and socializing right now is just hopping on the phone, texting folks. So that's felt different for sure. Yeah. You, when you think about the impact that coronavirus has had, do you think it will shift the way that you communicate electronically? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think what I'm seeing is that all of the kind of mediums of communication that were set up before, like people liking each other's Instagram posts, you know, commenting, things like that, people are running towards that because those are kind of like the things that are pre-set up and, you know, you want to entertain yourself at home. And as I said, I don't have those things. So I definitely do think that it's shifting the way that people are communicating and that people are running full on into the other, you know, the technological modes of interacting with each other that we already have. But my Mm -hmm. fear is that that's going to become even more of the norm. And Mm -hmm. so that people aren't going to, I mean, I think that after this kind of dies down, people are going to be running towards one another in the street, like really excited for physical interaction and being close to folks that they love. But I also think that this is definitely going to change the way that we kind of interact. And I'm not quite sure it's for the better. But you're not getting the Instagram or Twitter anytime soon. It's not shifting your technological needs. Oh, no, 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 no. (laughs) I'm calling people. I'm texting people. I stay off the gram. I stay off the tweets and the Twitter. It's I actually did a about five years ago, I did a social media cleanse and I have not looked back once. Mm -hmm. It's been awesome for me. Very cool. Well, thank you for giving us the real, real, I think, I don't know what the breakdown of introvert, extrovert, or, you know, these are kind of arbitrary markers in some ways Mm -hmm. of our listeners. I definitely know there's a lot of folks who are like, 
this is what I do anyway. If you're introverted or you work from home, not much has changed. And for my extroverts, some folks are really hurting out there for that physical connection. So thank you for being real about where you're at and giving us some insight. So let's hop into the questions. And and I really, <laughs> when, I, when I first met you, Allison, and you told me about all of the things you do that you've done, I was like, this lady needs to be on my podcast. She probably has managed more careers than anyone else that I've known. Maybe like you're tied for second, I believe. So because <laughs> of you transitioning all the all these times, I'm sure that you've heard this question, what do you do? on the regular what do you do what do you do it's the first question strangers ask it's a networking question it's when people first meet you they might ask you that so on a scale of one to ten how much do you dislike that question and ten is like to the maximum one is like i love answering it please ask me all day long you know there was a time in my life that i would say oh my gosh ten hundred percent when I was living in DC for sure, because I think that so much value and worth was predicated on what do you do? It, it, it was like, if you gave me the right answer, I'll stick around for the next five minutes of this conversation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But if I, but if I think that you're not valuable for me to be here and hear what you have to say, I'm going to make some polite little, you know, excuse to beeline it for the bathroom or on to the next person. But I think that at this juncture in my life, I'd say one. I've kind of redefined the the meaning of that question, kind of like the intention behind that question for me. I mean, I think that so much in our society is tied to, you know, what you do for work, what you do occupationally. This has kind of been like my own self journey as well is because I've done so many different things. I don't feel bad tying some deeper meaning of who I am to that question because there's so many facets of myself that I've explored through my work. Mm -hmm. So it feels like that is being reflected in that question when I give that answer because my answer is not just a 10 second answer. You're going to be there for five minutes listening <laughs> to what I do do. What's so the, yeah, I'd say, I'd say one. That is, I think that's a first on the part. Actually, no, one other person said one. When you react in that way, when you do respond with your five-minute response, how do folks respond to that? Because I think, uh, like you said, it sounds like you redefine the question for yourself. I don't know necessarily that other people have redefined that question. So they may still want to make a beeline to the bathroom or you know, assess you based on your value to them. How do folks typically respond when you answer that question? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think there tend to be two camps of folks, right? You're the folks that definitely are still inclined to make the beeline to the bathroom. And quite honestly, thanks for showing me your colors. You go <laughs> to the bathroom, girl. <laughs> like, Go ahead. You got to pee that bad, make your escape. I think, though, the overwhelming majority of people that hear my, you know, kind of long drawn out, especially in comparison to the normal answer, they're kind of intrigued. I think that there's something inside of a lot of people that want to explore all the facets of who they are and have that reflected in what they do career wise, occupationally. And I think that it piques their interest when they hear, oh, here's this person that's like been able to do that. and I want to know more, like, what is it that has enabled her to jump from thing to thing? Because this is, you know, I think there's so much, we're taught 
like your path should be kind of linear. You should be sticking to one thing and building a career and rising through the ranks. And I just, I feel like our generation especially is questioning that, you know, like, well, wait, why does it have to be that way? And what are the ultimate markers of like, what makes that the way to be? Is it monetary success? Because I would say that that is not what I'm searching for in my life. I'm looking for being well-rounded and happy. And I think that people, when they hear my answers, something inside of them is intrigued because there's a part of them that wants that too. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. When you think about that trend, and I, I, I don't even know if it's a trend. I don't know the statistics specifically. And I think you're right that our generation and others are entering into, I don't want to say phase, it's not a phase, we're entering into a different way to work and to live, right? Working to live, living yeah. to work, and we're demanding different things. And it might, may not be about monetary, it may not be linear. And I actually think that that is the way of how most people work. It just our conventional wisdom about how people work hasn't caught up to that. So you won't hear a career counselor you know, giving you this kind of advice. You won't hear your admissions department. You won't hear, I, I even career coaches, you won't hear this advice from your parents to like pursue your passion or be well-rounded and love what you do, even though a lot of folks are pursuing and developing their career in that way. And so I just think it's right. interesting that our, even if that's the way most people work, most people aren't staying at a job for 50 years anymore. The wisdom and the advice around finding a career or developing one has largely mirrored that old way of working. Yeah, it's like it hasn't caught up, right? Yeah. I mean, I do think that in some ways, it is a privilege to get to the point where you can explore all of these modes of who you are, you know? It means that you've gotten to a place of just like owning it, owning yourself and recognizing that I don't want to call it a disservice, but I just, I almost view people, we're so complex. Like, do you really want to be on one path for the rest of your life, steadily chugging down one street when there are 10,000 other streets of exploration that could lead you to the same ultimate path, you know? And not that it's a disservice to stay on that one path, but to me, I mean, in my own life, I would call it a disservice. For myself, I would call it a disservice to myself. Yeah, that resonates because I think, I think it's, it seems like a strong or a harsh word, but I think that when folks aren't fully in and in alignment with their talents, their gifts, and what they're supposed to be doing on this planet, they actually are doing the planet a disservice. Like, there is someone yeah. that is in need of the way that, you know, whatever lights you up, somebody needs that. Like you need that yourself for sure. And other people need that, whether it's a gift or a message or a talent, a skill, it is a disservice to ourselves and to others when we don't fully step into those gifts. So yeah, I, it's, I, I still struggle with that because I wonder, you know, I, I don't think that there is even one path to being a dabbler. So I think people kind of give these extremes or these ultimatums like, well, either you're an entrepreneur and you're pursuing your passion and you're doing what you love, or you're stuck at a job that you hate and you're there for 40 years. I think, I don't know right. that everybody is meant to be an entrepreneur, 
But I also, I've, I'm in agreement with you and it resonates with me that I think that we have, we all have very many talents. We're very complex, we're very nuanced. There are lots of things that we can pursue with our talent and our gift. Our gifts can manifest in so many ways. And part of what we are supposed to do here on this earth as humans is explore those multiple ways. And there are some people who do that really easily and readily. <laughs> and some people who, right. for whatever reason, are like, nah, I'm going to stick to this one thing. Yeah. And I think, and you know, there's so many things that keep people in that lane of sticking to the one thing. A lot of it is, you know, as I said, some of it is privilege. And I, and I say that because there are some folks whose economic reality is like, you got to make a certain amount because you're saddled with loans or whatever it is leaving that great nine to five with amazing benefits, stability, where you've been rising through the ranks, like that's just not an option, you know? And then you can explore things outside of that. And so that I get think gets back to that original question of what do you do? I never interpret that as what do you do career-wise? I always tell people my passions, my, I mean, it's, that's why it's a five minute long answer, you know, because it's literally all the things that I physically do in the world. Yeah, so let's flip that and come back to the point that you made. When you answer in that way, you said for for one camp of people, it kind of sparks this curiosity that they have within them. Like, oh, I am just as complex and maybe I'm describing or I'm sitting in one lane where when I could sit in many. So one of the questions that I ask folks on the podcast is like, what do you think it is about you that separates you from most people? So the person that you're talking to that you've answered like this five minute answer and they're like, huh, like I want to be able to do that or I feel that way, but I'm not currently living that way. What would you say to that person? Because I have a lot of folks who listen to the podcast and they're like, okay, sounds great for you too. Like Stephanie, Allison, glad y'all have, you know, pursued multiple things, but what about me? I, I could never do that. What do you say to those people? How are you able, how have you been able to do all of these things, be in all these roles and execute on them? And I know you talked a little bit, privilege is definitely involved, but is there a skill that you feel like you've cultivated or what is it that sets you apart from the folks who don't take that leap, even though they could? Right. So I think something you said in there, I think it points exactly to what I would say my answer is, which is like, why can't I do that? This is something that I've actually done a lot of soul searching on, what differentiates me from folks that maybe feel like they have an inability to get there or there's something standing in their way. And I genuinely think that the experiences that I've had in my life, for example, went off to college, 18, like a bunch of other folks in the world, did two years. And then two years in, I just found myself lost, really lost. I had spent 18 years of my, or I guess 20 years of my life up until that point, really putting a lot of stock and value into what other people thought about me and the path that is the path that folks should take, right? You go to college, you do really well, you go to a good college and you get a good job. And I was so tied up in that, that I didn't stop to think about like, what is, what is it really that I want out of life? And I'm having these big questions at age 20. And I think a lot of people have these questions at age 20, but they just keep on chugging along. Mm -hmm. And I decided I'm going to take time. I'm going to take some time. I'm going to figure this out because I don't want to A, be wasting my parents' money while I'm figuring this out, 
but also B, I don't know that I can give it the time that it's due because I will be so bogged down in classes and essays and all these other things. So I ended up taking what I thought would be a year and turned into four. Hmm. And during those four years, I returned back home, was living with my parents, and I would get questions all the time, particularly from their friends, a lot of whom are very accomplished people. Well, what are you doing home? Are you supposed to be in college? <laughs> like, it was like there's something wrong with me that I had left and taken time off. And I just had to develop a thicker skin. So much of my life, I had navigated circles where people's perception of who you are and what you're doing are so incredibly important. There's such an emphasis placed on that. And during that time, when I really couldn't explain, I couldn't give people a reason that they found to be adequate as to why I was taking time off. To them, it was like, well, you don't take time off unless something really, like, it has to be like something medically that's happened or someone died. Like, those are the only things that they could conceive of is, take, is taking you out of that four-year path forward. Mm. And it just, it couldn't, it didn't dawn on them as like, a conceivable or rational answer, like, look, I'm taking time off to like figure out what I want in the world, to get into the best space mentally, to explore a, a craft, because at the time I was training with a master goldsmith in DC and working with my hands, which for me is one of the most valuable ways that I've, modes of working for myself is like being the physical labor, the producing of something tangible at the end of the day, not just like taping things off and sending them off into the ether. I'm not someone that is super attuned to like the advances of technology. I love the old school smithing of metal and breaking of things apart and soldering things and sawing. So that was really important for my soul. It was like a lot of soul work, but that wasn't enough of a reason for them to take time off. And so I really had to develop skin where if I went into a dinner party or something where I was getting all these questions, I could be real with my answer and I could own my answer and own where I was and not give a, you know, flying whatever, <laughs> what the person's reaction was. I think it's my thick skin. I don't know that it's a gene. I think it's just being in a position where you feel weak and vulnerable and coming out on the other end saying, you know what, I don't really care how everyone else in my environment is viewing my vulnerable work, my needing to take time for myself. These questions of what I'm doing with my life at this time that are so laced with judgment, I mean, that was really what put me in the place of being able to dabble so much because I realized, like, if this is a traditional path forward that everyone wants to co-sign and say is the, what it should be, I don't want that. And I have to be okay with not wanting that and owning that I don't want that and owning that people are going to react in a way that might not be the way that I want them to react. But I think it was genuinely just developing a thick skin and a high tolerance for other people's judgments of myself. But now I just do what I want. And I don't really care what, what people's reactions are to my resume, which has five different things that I've done in the past, you know, 10 years. Ooh, that really resonates. It took me directly to an instance right when I was leaving DC and talking with a former mentor of mine who was urging me not to leave the practice of law, like almost begging on mm -hmm. the verge of tears. And it's so interesting, like coming back to your original point, you know, with the camp of folks who there's something bubbling up inside them that 
they see reflected in you. It's so interesting that a lot of those folks don't even believe in the crap that they're telling you, <laughs> but they want you to right. stay on this path. I'm like, so what you want me to do is to stay working for the federal government as an attorney for 40 years like you, you are freaking miserable. Like you hate it here. Yeah, you're not happy. Uh (laughs) Why do you want me to do this? And it was just like a really strange, it was the strangest parting I probably have ever had. I'll never forget that where she's like, she's like literally begging me. And I'm like, so I can be like you. And I wasn't trying to be disrespectful. I respect my elders. Okay. Like, but I was just like, (laughs) I am looking at what I will would become if I take the advice that you're trying to give me. It was a huge shift for me in thinking about like half the people don't even believe this stuff. But it takes strength for you to get there, right? Like that moment in which you were like, nah, this is not going to be my life. That's a moment of such strength and inner awareness. I mean, we talk about risk taking, like, of course, all of these career jumps, having a side hustle, having one career path that you're sticking to, but a million passions on the side, or just working five jobs at once, that is not the norm. And so it takes strength to own it. It takes strength to get to the place where you're like, this is actually what I want my life to look like, because it's going to be 10 times more vibrant and fulfilling for me. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a strong moment. That's a strong turnaround to get to. Mm. So let's let's talk about the the leaps and talk about the five jobs at one time or right after each other. You've talked about the work that you've pursued has been vulnerable work. It has been soul work. It has been like working with your hands. Talk to us about the common threads throughout the things that you've been up to. And when you think about having to package that, whether it's on a resume in a what do you do conversation to an employer. Um, or just making it make sense for folks. If you even feel like, feel the need to do that, talk to us about that process. What what has that been like for you? I'm glad you asked that. I've actually been trying to work through this myself, like in the last couple of months, because I'm not sure. I mean, there's definitely like, if you look at my resume, I've taught, I've, I've worked at a charter school incubator. There's things that have threads of commonality for sure. But then there are things that are kind of like anomalies, like, Standouts like, oh, and then you were Goldsmith randomly. <laughs> and I think for me, I think A, it's hard because we do very much function in society where, especially when you're handing your resume off to someone, I think the number one fear when they see so many different pivots is, oh my gosh, this person is flighty. <laughs> They're all over the place. They don't know what they want to do. And you know what? I'm not flighty, A. I show up, I'm motivated, and I'm a hard worker. So that is definitely something that I take issue with and I think is a really hard kind of box to work against because it's something that people automatically put on you when they see that there's there's not as much continuity in your resume. But I would say that, yeah, I I, I am figuring out what I want to do. And to me, life is an adventure and an exploration. And just like we were talking about the complexity within someone, I, I don't know that that goes away. And so that outer sort of realization of the inner complexity in some ways should be just as complex, right? At least that's my kind of take on it. And so if there was one overwhelming kind of common thread in my resume, I'd say I kind of harken back to something that Melinda Weeks talked about when you interviewed her. 
talking about just like aligning the work with your values. Mm-hmm. I'm very rooted in social justice work. And so everything that I've done has kind of had that going for it. And she made this point. She said, and I might not be quoting her verbatim, but essentially she said, when your work and your value system don't align, and those two things are in conflict, it's, it's just hard. Mm-hmm. It's hard to be in that space and to do the work and feel motivated. And I think especially for me as a black woman, like the material outcomes of work that you can't get behind affect our community. We've seen, especially in the system that we work in, if you just put your head down and you're doing something where your value system is X and your work is counter to X and the consequences of that work could possibly impact your community. Like looking at this administration now, there are a lot of full-time federal employees that just kind of have to put their head down and bite the bullet. This guy is blowing things up left, right, and center. And I'm sure that there are a lot of people in D.C., which skews largely, largely blue, that are not down with the policies that they have to promote and enact. That would be stomach turning for me. I couldn't be in that situation. It would take a toll on my mental health. It would take a toll on my physical health because those two things are interrelated. Like I wouldn't be able to do it. So for me, the biggest thread of commonality in all of the positions I've held and roles that I've held is that I believe in the work. That's powerful. That's really, really powerful. It's just reminding me of the different calculations that people do. And in thinking back to Melinda's interview, she was episode seven. She talked about, you know, what good can come of me being miserable? (laughs) Like, I don't, Mm -hmm. right, like this calculation. And I, so I think about on one hand, some folks who, when they do their calculation, And I don't think it's like this plus this, but it's like weighing what's most important to me. And you, you named it before. Sometimes it's my immediate needs need to be met. And like, so this is my calculation. Sometimes stepping back and having some privilege and being like, oh, I can, I cannot do this, or I could step further into this. It's helpful for some folks. I know some of my classmates from law school, they are willing to do whatever because they may not believe in what they're doing but they feel like the money that they're making or the credibility or the status that they're building will allow them to get to another space. Now, is that actually happening? I don't know. I can only look from the outside. You just bring up a really important point in reminding folks that like your calculation, how you weigh what's most important to you, what you value, what is centered in your work makes a huge difference and it impacts you. And I've seen when folks don't take that seriously, they're hurting themselves and their community. There's a net impact and we have to focus on that. It may be pushing a little here and pulling a little here, but net what is happening. And I I think you're just reminding folks to be really aware of that as they're making decisions about their work and their lives. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you summed it up. Yeah. So you're still figuring it out. We'll, we'll, it'll, it doesn't have to be figured out. It's a journey for sure. And when you think about your journey from role to role, can you give us maybe a specific example of where you've problem solved in one role using a skill or in a unique way that you brought from another? One of the first things that I learned about in jewelry making, which I love, by the way, is that metal can always be melted down. 
and you can start over. You mess up, a mistake is fixable. You could be making a ring and there's like multiple different ways that you could set a stone. And one master goldsmith will have his way and then a book could tell you four other ways and then you go online and there's five different other ways that you do it. And everyone has their own unique method, their own unique way of angling the tool, their own unique outcome. Because some people like a super shiny and you know, polished bezel. Some people like something that looks a little bit more organic, that's kind of pushed onto the metal so that the stone is secure, but not 100%, you know, high shine, perfect setting. And so I think one of the things I learned in jewelry making is like, there's 10 different methods to get to the same type of result. Your aesthetics obviously factor into it and it can accommodate a lot of different types of thinking, which I loved. And that has definitely served me well in everything from, you know, when I was program associate at City Bridge and helping run events for them and working on their stewardship network. I mean, when you're in events and something goes wrong, you got to be on your toes. And sometimes the prescriptive way to fix something is not necessarily the best way. So you have to bring in your creative thinking, my jewelry mind of there's five different ways to set this stone. You know, way A is not going to get me the outcome that I want. Let's go to B, C, D, and E and try those. And so I think, I'm trying to think specific, specific. There was one event we ran where we were just having a really, really hard time listening to our keynote speaker. And I don't know if it was like the audio guys, just we didn't have enough time for a sound check or whatever it was. And we were in the back waving our hands wildly, like trying to get this guy's attention, like speak up, come closer to the mic, you know. And I just remember thinking like, okay, this is the normative way that we're supposed to do this. We're just supposed to go and like get his attention by waving or snapping or doing something. But there's got to be another way that we can get his attention. And I don't know what we ended up doing if we like sent a text along to someone else that was in the front to get him to like kind of, you know, look down at their table and make a nudging kind of a, hey, no one can hear you in this entire 125-person gala dinner. But we ended up troubleshooting it because it was that the only kind of prescriptive answer that my team could come up with in the beginning was just like stand in the back and wave your hands. You can do that for 15 minutes. If someone's not looking at you, they're not going to raise their speaking volume. They're not going to come closer to the mic. So it was that kind of jewelry-minded thinking of it's not that one way we've got to come up with other ways to get to the same outcome that finally got us to get his attention and get him to the point where it was like, oh, actually people can hear what you're saying. And now people can nod along because they know what's going on in the room as opposed to people just kind of like silently nodding along awkwardly and they have no idea what's happening in the room. I just love that some people were just like, I'll just go along with this and I'll keep nodding. Can't really hear this person kind of playing along. Well, what would have been great is if someone were like, we can't hear you. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Be that bold person. I mean, if I were an audience member, I would have done that. But, you know, a lot of people are hesitant. They're scared of what people are. Oh, there's that boorish guy in the back screaming out again. Like, probably would have saved us all a lot of time and effort. We could have caught the first 20 minutes of the guy's speech. Yes, this has happened in so many. I feel like this is a, it's like a social experiment waiting to happen oh yeah 
it's a it's an episode of what is that show john quinones what would you do right because no one wants to be the first person that kind of stands out and i think that again that's the strength thing like you don't want to be the person that puts yourself out there and makes the call you just want to pass the buck and let someone else be the kind of you know experimenter or, or adventurer on that front i think some folks are starting to realize that by not doing something, they are doing something, right? Like th- that we're not mm-hmm. neutral or like I can just like pass the book and, and nothing happens. Passing the book, there's an impact to that. I oh, think yeah. It some fuels. people are starting to get that. I hope. Maybe it's more of a hope than an observation. I mean, I'm certainly hopeful that that's what's happening. <laughs> but sometimes I look around and I'm like, where are the adults in the room? An adult meaning like person of strength that's going to put themselves out there and call out something that's wrong when they see it, you know, as opposed to just like nodding along and being like, yeah, this is really interesting. You're bringing up a good point and bring me back to a question that I I actually think you kind of answered, but I want to come back to it now that you brought this up. One of my core beliefs is that, you know, when we are born, we have everything we need we are unashamed, we are enough, we are whole, we are free. Like the way that children Mm. ask questions and show up in space, kids will be like, there's a booger hanging out your nose. Hey person, I can't hear you. Like (laughs) they're very open, right? And I actually think over time, what happens is we start to unlearn some of that. And we learn, like we learn to shut up. Like children are to be seen and not heard. And, you know, don't speak up or like something happens and you, and you speak up and you get rejected. So you don't do it again. So when you say, is there an adult in the room? I totally understand what you mean. And I actually think as adults, we are less honest than we were as kids. We're less open. We're less loving of ourselves and others. We're less connected. So actually, I do want to come back to this question, which we ask children. And I don't know if we even care about how the answer comes out but we use that answer to steer them into a path that I think actually um, takes them further from who or what they want to be than when we first ask them that question so that question is what do you want to be when you grow up we ask kids that when they're school age elementary school middle school even high school you know we're asking like what are you going to do next and are you going to go to college there's some assumptions and when we ask them but we stop asking that question after a while. So I do want to pose that question to you. As you think about yourself as a, someone who is adulting, what do you want to be when you grow up? Yeah, I love that. I should have edited it and said, is there a child in the room? Because I think you hit the <laughs> nail on the head. It's 100%. And I, and I felt that in teaching too. Like kids are just incredibly glorious beings that we can actually learn so much from and oftentimes we don't hand them the mic and they should be handed the mic at every single occasion possible. What do I want to be when I grow up? So I'm going to give you adjectives as opposed to like a role or a noun. I want to be unafraid. I want to be evolving and I want to be happy because that's what it is for me. Ultimately, we're not here for a long time. I'm here for a good time. I'm here for a time with community, the people that I love that are near and dear to my heart. I'm here for good food. I'm here for great conversations. And all of the things that enable those things to happen are great to me. And so I think 
being unafraid is important in that. Um, I don't think you can have great conversation without being unafraid to get into the nitty gritty and be serious about things that, you know, people kind of laugh off. I want to be evolving. And I think that it's great that this is a question that you're posing to people at many junctures in their life and in their career, because we are constantly evolving. And it should be a question that we ask ourselves or ask others maybe every year. You know, what do you want to be when you grow up? Because it can change mm -hmm. and it should change, perhaps. And happy, happy is the ultimate, right? I mean, that for me, it's the ultimate. So I'd say unafraid, evolving and happy. Okay, so let's get to the last question. And uh, I'm saying last. It might be the last. It might be the second last. I, there might be another question that comes up. But as you know, the, the name of the show is called Take Nothing When I Die. It's about being a living ancestor. It's about literally taking nothing with you when you die. And as part of the inspiration for the show, I found this Les Brown quote. He's a, a life coach that talked about the graveyard being the richest place on the earth. And he said it's the richest mm. place on the earth because it's here that you will find all the hopes, all of the dreams that were never fulfilled, the books never written, the songs never sung, the inventions never shared. Literally, people are taking these things with them to the grave. So for you, Allison, please share with us, what's the most expensive piece of wisdom, advice, or thing that you don't want to take with you to the grave? So what pops immediately into mind is I got engaged about a year and a half ago. My fiance it comes from a pretty remarkable and I would say unique kind of background in childhood. He grew up in a kind of, I'd say, pseudo-intentional community down in South Texas, in San Antonio. And just with folks that all were kind of united in this common project, which was they did a lot of refugee and asylum seeking rights and immigration rights work. But then they also just decided like, hey, we really love each other. Like, let's all just like live close to one another, raise our kids together and impart the way that we think life should be lived on our children. And hopefully they'll take that forward into the world. And part of the way that they live is like with incredible sort of deep rooted intentionality, care for others. And then this belief that everything that you can do will be done better with like 50 pairs of hands, right? They're just so rooted in community. And I think that that's something that like American individualism doesn't really account for. Like age 18, we're fleeing the coop. No one's living with their parents anymore. I mean, they have this like very tight knit people, kids return home, kids live near their parents. It's just so community oriented. And so this community threw us an engagement party this past December in San Antonio. And one of the kind of community elders, whose name actually is Jack Elder, came up to me and he was like, you know, I just want to let you know, raising your kids is a radical act. And I was like, huh. And kind of like that sat with me for a while. And then I spent the next couple of days thinking about it. And what I think he meant is like, in a world where, again, this kind of harkens back to earlier in the conversation, there are norms, there are established norms and kind of edicts. Like this is how it's supposed to be. This is how we do things. Raising your kids to question, raising your kids to like reflect the morals and values that you hold, but also to like explore their own personhood. Like that is radical, right? And so I would say that that's probably the best advice that I could kind of pass on to anyone. And 
advice that you can take for it doesn't just have to be about your kids if you don't want to have kids or you can't have kids. Like, you know, raising yourself, because we are all raising ourselves at this point in time, is a radical thing. Meaning don't just put it in the hands of everything that you ingest, the media, the whatever else, the norms of society. Like, raise yourself to question, to be critical, to think, to explore, to be unafraid. I mean, it is radical to do that. And it could possibly change the course of a lot of things. That was a gem. That was literally a gem. Thank you for that wisdom. It felt very expensive. Is there anything else you want to share with us, with our audience? Anything else? I would just say the world is constantly changing. This feels like a particularly kind of unsteady time when things are just shifting constantly day to day, hour to hour, minute to minute. I'd say just remember to take care of yourself, you know, in these times where we have to self-isolate and we're being encouraged not to be around others, which I think that there's so much strength and beauty and community, community making. Just remember to keep yourself at the fore and really just be attuned to what your body and mind, the signals that it's sending to you to, you know, I need a little extra care here. Just be attuned to those things. Attunement in an age of social distancing. That is a whole other podcast. That's a whole nother one. Oh, yeah. You can hop on and do that one a different time. Um, oh, I'm ready. This has been so fun. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Allison. I know you don't play on the Instagram or the tweets and the Twitters. Is there a place where, if folks want to get in contact with you, if they want to say hi, if they want to see where you're up to or support you, how can they reach you? Well, if anyone is in the Atlanta area, would like to invest, I'm all about, you know, wealth building, equity building, especially for communities that have been traditionally kind of kept out of that realm. Hit me up. My email is ahaywood, A-H-A-Y-W-O-O-D at kw.com. Work for Keller Williams. I'm happy to just, you know, continue the conversation, even if you're not interested in investing or purchasing for yourself. Love to have these conversations. I think they're important and that everyone should be having more of them in the world. So thank you for creating a platform, you know, for people to have these discussions. I think it's important. Thank you so much. I will make sure your information is linked on the show notes so that folks can reach out to you if they want to ask questions or they're interested in investing. And it's been such a pleasure, Allison. Thank you so much for taking time today. And we hope that we will talk to you soon. All right, y'all. Y'all got a lot of goodness from Allison. What was your takeaway? You had so much to choose from. I'm wondering what's still sitting with you. I know I'm left with the takeaway that I chose from this episode, which is when Allison said, raise yourself to question, to be critical, to think, to explore, to be unafraid. It is radical to do that. And it could possibly change the course of a lot of things. So that take nothing when I die takeaway, it applies to knowledge and power and COVID and family and all of the things, right? It's a universal message of questioning, being genuinely and curiously critical, 
in service of changing the planet. So we're trying to solve things here, y'all, all over the place, in all spheres, on all levels. I'm really appreciative that Allison gave us that gem to be thinking about. It is that time. It's time for me to sign off. I want to make sure that you are connected with Take Nothing When I Die in all of the ways that you want to. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss anything. When you subscribe on your platform of choice, as soon as an episode uploads, it will be downloaded to your device. So make sure you like, favorite, subscribe. And if you have a few minutes, please leave a review. Apple Podcasts makes it really easy to do so. You can also find us on social media. We are on Twitter at T-N-W-I-D, and also on Instagram at Take Nothing When I Die, all spelled out. If you want to build community with us in a different way, check out patreon.com slash T-N-W-I-D. Over on Patreon, we've got videos of the podcast if you like visuals, more tidbits and takeaways from me, and even better, a community of living ancestors. These folks are loyal fans and supporters of the podcast. They are able to ask questions of me, and there's some exclusive content that you will literally not see anywhere else on the internet from me. So head on over to Patreon to join that community. If you are feeling generous, and if you got it like that, and you want to give some coin, you can always do so through a one-time donation, which supports the production of this podcast, as well as my coaching and consulting work. You can find me on PayPal at paypal.com slash Stephanie Ghostin, just my name. On Venmo, it's Stephanie Dash Ghostin, and you'll see a picture of me. And on Cash App, it's the dollar sign S-L-G-H-O-S-T-O, S-L-Ghosto. Also, don't forget to check out the show notes page, stephaniegostin.com slash T-N-W-I-D is where I house all of the episodes as well as the show notes. It's there. You'll find all the links that I've mentioned, both to social media, to the Patreon page, to the donation links, as well as more information about our guests and all the resources mentioned during the show. So if you missed something or you're like, what was the spelling of that one thing that so-and-so named, or you just want to see some great artwork, memes, and doodles, go on over to my site, stephanieghostin.com slash T-N-W-I-D. This is my time, y'all. I have to sign off. Again, this, this is your host, Stephanie Ghostin Paul. I'm bringing you the Take Nothing When I Die podcast, and I'm leaving you with your reminder that you are a living ancestor. Take care and hope to talk soon.